Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. So it wasn't to be for Bailly, but so much upon which to reflect in the company. First of all, of Neil Callan and Cornelius Lysett. Gentlemen, good morning. Cornelius, your overriding impressions of yesterday's Kitco British Champions Day. Well, clearly uh, disappointment for, for a lot of people that Bailly didn't actually complete the uh, unbeaten run. However, a great, uh, a great race uh, and a whole series of great races. And when this day, Kitco British Champions Day, was envisaged, what, 10, 12 years ago now, mm. a little bit, 12 years ago, and people were sceptical and people said it wouldn't work and people worried about absolutely impossible conditions and everything. You know, there were so many uh, sceptics and so much negativity. Well, I think um, uh, the, the organisers can look, look at that and say, well, you know, this is what we planned. It's maybe, you know, the, the, comparing to Art Weekend, comparing to the Breeders' Cup is not entirely uh, legitimate. However, this is a British version. So in, uh, America has its Breeders' Cup. France has its art weekend, and Britain has got its British Champions Day at Ascot, which is an all-singing, all-dancing uh, end to the core part of the season, even though always worth reminding ourselves there are two and a half months of the season to go, not least of the Trainers' Championship. Uh, did you find the result deflating from a, a racing point of view, Neil, or was there enough to celebrate for you? Yeah, look, I mean... You want to, you want to, you want to cheer your champions on. Like, what are you, you know, even as a jockey or, or, or a person of the public, you know, they 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 capture everybody's imagination because it's a bit like when Frankel was around. Like everybody just kind of jumped on the bandwagon, and you want to see the champions win. But look, it's a horse race, and like William Haggis uh, gracefully said after that, uh, it is a horse race, and horses are not unbeatable. So, and they just proved it. But. He's um, he's still going to go out a champion, and uh, we have to remember all those big wins he's been doing throughout the whole year. Something struck me as I was driving home last night, which was that if his blip had come midway through the season, if he'd been beaten, say, at Royal Ascot, or if he'd been defeated at, at York, as great champions have been, Brigadier Gerard was defeated at York and others along the way, and then rounded off with a, a sparkling performance yesterday the way in which he would be perceived would probably be different. It's the fact that it's his final run and they'd made a big legacy play of it. Yeah, look, you can play it both ways. You know, you can... The build-up throughout the whole season and winning all those races um, obviously brings it to a climax of Champions Day. And this is the whole idea of having Champions Day, is to bring the champions for one day uh, from all around Europe. We had French runners there yesterday as well. So, um, And we had the, the, the filly from Australia. So, you know, it's Champions Day for a reason. Um, yeah, look, and then you can obviously say that if he did have a blip throughout the summer, then he's redeemed himself. So it probably would have, you know, been a big thing on the one day, 
or we could have had the big thing throughout the whole season. So. And, and the important thing, you talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly good line, if I might uh, say, say so. Something else you were thinking about, obviously, on the way home last night. But, but, but the, the, the fact is, Bayed was beaten, and William Haggis uh, and Jim Crowley both get 10 out of 10 for the, the graceful way they, they took it. And I thought the, the Williams' interview with, with Lydia mm. on the channel yesterday afternoon was, was, was tremendous and so proud. A, of that horse, B, of uh, my Prospero's run a sensational race, and C, of the journey that they've had over the last uh, 18 months. And to think June last year, who'd heard of, of Bide, and he has grown and grown to the world's uh, highest-rated uh, racehorse. And it's, it's been an astonishing journey, and it's been great to be part of that. So on the one hand, Bide has been beaten, but on the other hand, you know, we have a winner, and we have a very good winner and a very good story as well to celebrate. So they are the broad brushstrokes. Let's try and fill in some of the finer detail now by having a look back on yesterday's feature race, the Kipco British Champion Stakes. Great headline in yeah. today's trade paper, and I think replicated in the Daily Mail as well, a bridge too far for Baid. Um, and this is why, in the opinion of my expert guests uh, this morning. Here is Baid scything through the pack. Blue and white stripe gap. Lovely seam up the inside, and you thought, well, we know how it here goes go. from here, Neil Callan. Why didn't it? Yeah, look, I mean, unless anything comes to light after, um, whether that's this morning or this afternoon, I don't know, but look, he just... He travelled well, he relaxed good, everything was fine. He's never been on ground as testing as this over this sort of trip on a stiff track. It's not a flat track like York. So, you know, if there was any chink in his armour, it was going to be found out here. And it, and it was. And look, it just... Look, he's, he's ran to the line, but to me, he just wasn't at his best, mm. I don't think. You know, you can blame the ground, you can blame... Some people were blaming Jim's right. Gave him a perfect ride. He had him nice and relaxed. He, he followed the right horses through. He was on the premises of falling and a half down if he was good enough. And I just think he just wasn't at his best um, yesterday. And Jim, Jim brought up the ground, and clearly the ground is a, is a factor that has to be considered. I thought it was striking in that post-race uh, post interview with William. He said, well, Jim's saying the ground... I, and obviously he's got three runners in the race. Mm. He was watching all three of them. He needed to further assess that situation but that sparkle that brilliance that he demonstrated particularly at York in in high summer just wasn't quite there today but look how it, it wasn't that far away was it and uh, as soon as the, the whip was drawn and you know the, the writing was clearly on the wall I thought it was a great horse race to watch well, not only uh, with watching Bide but watching Adiar and watching Baybridge the winner as well I love that move that William Buick made on Adiar that was a really striking thing to watch and the way Baybridge travelled into the closing stages and continued this great association now between Richard Kingscote and Sir Michael Stout I mean two massive days in the British racing calendar the two richest days Derby Day and British Champions Day the two richest races Derby and British Champions Day Richard Kingscote has been given an opportunity by Sir Michael Stout who doesn't have that many horses at this level and they've nailed it both times Neil how hard is that? Yeah look I don't think it's something you plan to do um, obviously Sir Michael has been around a long time he's a very clever astute top class trainer and um you know, he might not be at the top of, of the tree, but he's still showing how good a trainer he is and how... One, one good thing about uh, someone like Sir Michael Stout is he, he, he uses the most uh, free thing you can have, and that is patience. And he brings his horses. Like, if you remember this Bay Bridge when he won at Sandon earlier this season and Bally Lynch stood had bought a half share in him, 
then you could you could kind of read that uh, they were thinking this horse was going to be mm. pretty good horse and uh, he's shown it yesterday. What a fabulous day for Bally Lynch Stud as well. Unbelievable day for John O'Connor's Bally Lynch Stud. Stan the Stallion New Bay, the sire of Bayside Boy, the QE2 winner and of Bay Bridge. Uh, and they're going to stand Bay Bridge when, when, as and when he retires. We don't know quite when that's going to be. Plus the fact the half owns both horses, and he bred Bayside Boy, and he had the winner of the listed race at Leopardstown. I think I've got it all. Stud MD does well. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. great, some great business. I'd said yesterday if Carlsberg did race days, <laughs> I think that was that was one for him. But clearly, the headline act going into yesterday and coming out of yesterday was a horse that's enriched so many lives through the last 17 months, most particularly um, those closest to him, William Haggis, his wife Maureen, and the, the whole team in Newmarket. And William joins me now uh, on the line. William, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Um, with, a, with a night to, to sleep on it and to reflect and just to take a breath, how, how do you look back on, on this journey today? Well, it's been a fabulous one for all of us, obviously. And uh, yesterday <clears throat> was just a blip, one which we hoped uh, wouldn't happen, but it did, and that's the way it is, I'm afraid. It's, it was sad for us and a bit deflating, but uh, it doesn't take away what a magnificent horse he's been for us. Most importantly, has he come out of the race in, in, in good shape? Uh, I'm not actually at home today, Nick, because we've got the High Clear Yearling Parade this morning looking for the next Baid. Um, so uh, uh, I've had a video of seen him trot and he's absolutely fine. Um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with him that uh, they can see at this stage that I'll be back tonight and we'll counter him tomorrow and see what happens. Well, when you were, were watching the race, were there points in it that you were happy with, with what, was, what was unfolding or were you always... Were you always having reservations about how he was travelling? No, I always thought he was travelling well. I suspected that Adeyar would would uh, go fairly quickly after the straight as soon as he can. And I said to Jim, We're, they're going to make it a stamina test, which they did. And his stamina wasn't there. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I thought he was absolutely fine. And, and I, I don't want to blame any anything like ground or anything like that it just didn't happen oh yes we've had a few emails saying that he was too far back but if he'd shown his customary turn of foot yesterday he'd have still picked them off um you know i i anyway it just didn't happen nick and i don't want to look backwards we can't do anything about what's happened before we now move on to the next chapter i don't know if you were listening earlier in the program but i, I made the point to Neil and Cornelius, that every horse, even <coughs> the greatest horses, the Brigadier Gerrards and Secretariats were beaten during their careers, and their defeats sometimes were earlier on, and then they round off with a, with a great high. It, is the fact that it's his final run, does that sort of, do you think, deepen people's and your sense of, of deflation? You know, he could have had a blip earlier in the season and then, and then come gloriously to a conclusion, and, and we'd have all thought rather differently. Yeah, look, there's always that, Nick. But, you know, the horse didn't run to his best yesterday. I mean, he beat Dubaiana, who's a grand horse, don't get me wrong, and especially on that ground, but he beat him a couple of lengths at York. He beat him by a long-looking 10 lengths. So he wasn't, he just wasn't at his best. He didn't pick up for whatever reason. And we always make excuses for horses that get beaten. Either we blame the conditions or the jockey or the something or the this or the that. 
But at the end of the day, he didn't win and, and we wanted to go out on a high and I wanted the opportunity to really sell the horse. And when I mean sell the horse, you know, the horse has been an absolute star and I've underplayed him for most of his career, which now I regret because, you know, I've always not wanted to tempt fate with him. Uh, but he's a magnificent horse. He's done everything up until yesterday. He's done everything we've asked of him. I thought he was in fantastic condition. Um, we thought everything had gone right before the race and, and we were ready. And honestly, I didn't see him getting beat. And, uh, and for me, that's a bit disappointing professionally. But, you know, we move on. Do you, um, do you feel quite happy now, given what you've just said, that, that we spent much of the last two years almost over-hyping him or hyping him more than you wanted at the time because you were like, oh, come on, lads, calm down, calm down. And we were like, no, William, this is the, this is the second coming. In retrospect, are you quite pleased that he did get, get those sort of notices? Yeah, very much so. And I, I've had correspondence with Jim this morning, Jim Crowley, and, you know, said, I will never forget that day at York. I never will, and I don't think he will. He said... He gave me a feel like no other horse has ever done. So we'll cherish those memories and uh, and try and find the next one, um, Nick. Uh, people were suggesting yesterday that, that it would in some way impinge on, on stallion value. I, I would conjecture it wouldn't have any impact because stallions tend to be judged on what they have done rather than what they, they haven't done. Do you agree with that or not? Uh, well, I... I you know, always when a stallion is promoted, it's always what he's achieved, not what he didn't achieve. Um, you know, I think we'll soon forget. Nijinsky was a fantastic racehorse and got beaten. So was Brigadier Jarrod. He got beaten. You know, we could have not run him and, and said the ground was too soft and, and it would have ended a, a damp squib. But, um, you know, we, we, we wanted to keep him unbeaten because there's a bit of a mystery about that. He never got beaten. How good was he really? But the, the proximity, as I say, of, of Dubai Honor and the, the, the fact that he, beat, he couldn't beat my Prospero, who is a very promising horse, don't get me wrong, but he's not uh, yet as mature and ready as, as Baid, suggests to me that he just didn't fire. So, so be it, they don't win every race, not usually anyway. I wanted to have a look at this photograph that was posted on social media this morning by Ricky, who's looked after Baid. Um, for, a, for a long time. He, he tweeted at this point again to a stunning career, but massive thank you to this horse. He's taken me on a journey of a lifetime. So proud and honoured to have been part of him. It's just the most beautiful image of, yeah, of horse and man there. Isn't it? And, you know, I, I feel for Ricky, I feel for everyone involved with him closely because we had a lot of uh, our staff there, our office staff who've, who haven't been to see him yet. And there were a lot of people there for the crowning glory, and it and it, it didn't happen. So I'm sorry for them, but honestly, we've we've had such a wonderful time with him. He's been such a great horse, and the quickest son of See the Stars, um, and See the Stars is a magnificent sire. So you know we've got so much to look forward to, and and we would welcome any of his children in the years to come. Uh, I mean, for you, it's been a yeah, quite an emotionally fraught few months as well. Maureen had a, a really nasty accident. It's been great to see her up and about on her feet of late. You, you've had the, the pressures, glorious pressures in many respects, of, of dealing with this horse. When I, I watched you yesterday, I, I felt, whilst you were clearly disappointed, there was probably a sense of a bit of a, a weight coming off your shoulders at the same time. 
not at all. No, I'd love it. I'd love to train him for another season. Don't get me wrong, but uh, no, not at all. We felt no pressure with this horse. This horse, it was not complicated, and um, you know, I, I, I was sad. It's sad that it's the end for us, but uh, you know, he should have, have a glorious life in front of him, and I hope he has a fantastic one. And I hope he's supported by every breeder going, and they send their quality mares to him, and he can prove that he can star just as many ones as good as him. William, you've been very generous with your time, uh, particularly over the last 24 hours. Thanks so much. And um, fingers crossed that uh, this horse can leave as big an impact as a stallion as he has as a racehorse. Thank you very much, Nick. I hope you won't forget us next year when we don't have one like him. <laughs> oh, no, no danger of that. No danger of that. We'll be annoying you just as much next year. Um, thank you to William Haggis. And, of course, if you're... If you're a trainer in Newmarket and you, you train a horse like this and you're going to lose a horse race that everybody expects you to win, then I'm guessing that you're pretty happy if the person that beats you is the most revered trainer in Newmarket who has performed um, great miracles with horses for so long. And that, of course, was Sir Michael Stout with Bay Bridge and Sir Michael's on the line now. Morning, Sir Michael. Good morning. Um, what an extraordinary day yesterday was. Uh, a happier, a happier drive home for you, no doubt. Um, just tell me about how how you felt after the race and, and just that that atmosphere in the in the winners' enclosure. Well, we were elated. Um, you know, this is a good, solid, consistent horse. Um, I had sympathy for William because we we're, we're great friends, and I I thought it would be his day. When you were when you were training Bay Bridge up to this race, um, to what extent did you did you believe that he could lay down a, a real challenge to the vest? I honestly felt that um, we would be second. You know, Williams' horses looked to be a machine, um, so I was just hopeful. But no more than that. No more than that. No. Listen, you've, you've seen this horse winning his races in the style in which he has done it. Um, so, yeah, you had to think he would win. And for all that he'd been defeated in, in the midsummer, Sir Michael, that performance at Sandown when he won the Brigadier Gerard, a, a race that you like very much, and, and quite often you unleash a, a very good horse early in the season in that race, it was so sparkling in style that it had everybody talking about Bay Bridge as the sort of horse that might make an impact. Nobody would have been surprised if you said, well, there's the champion stakes winner at the end of the season that day. What do you, how do you read what happened between then and yesterday? Well, he was very good at Sandown, and we had him fit. And the race didn't go quite right for him at Royal Ascot, and also the ground was fast enough. When he went back to Sandown, yeah, he returned, and um, he, he had a... He had a he had a little um, injury, uh, a minor injury, um, and his, his homework has been very encouraging. We knew we had him right back to his best, his best weight and the way he was working, and uh, the team have done a great job with him. Um, he's a, a fine, imposing horse. He's a, he's a tremendous-looking horse. He, he really fills the eye, and he's not had that much racing. But clearly, he's a he's a commercial prospect as well. What do you think is going to happen now? I think you better ring the owners. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
We haven't discussed anything I, I, I don't want to do. What what more do you do you think he could achieve a lot more on the race course? Because the owners presumably are gonna seek your counsel first and say, Well, what what more could we get and when could we get it? Look, the, the owners are very professional. You know, they know the game inside out. And, of course, you know, we would like to keep him, but it, it, it has to be discussed. Would you, I mean, with horses like this before, you've won three champion stakes now and you won the last two at Newmarket with Kalanisi and Bill Sudsky, and they were both famed for, for going around the world and doing very well. Uh, is, is this a horse you would travel uh, sooner rather than later? You could travel, but as, as I say, we need to... We need to determine what the owners want. Would you, would you consider, would you consider the Breeders' Cup turf this year? Um, I really, I'm not being difficult, but we we have to have to have a discussion about this. You know, um, it, it is possible, but we we need to discuss what they know, what they want. But it's it's something that that could be on the table. You think that the year the year might not be over because he's not had that much racing. Nick, it sounds boring, but I don't know. You know, decisions have to be made. You don't sound boring at all. You don't sound boring <laughs> at all. I know there are a lot of people involved with this horse that you that you wanted to to give a nod to this morning. Just tell me who they are. Well, there's. Uh, Sarah Denis and, and, and James Savage and Kevin Bradshaw, who rides him nearly every day, and, uh, and Ted Durkin has written him in quite a bit of his fast work, too. And Ted is somebody whose feedback, I'm sure, is absolutely, is absolutely key. Is he, is, he, is he quite an important part of your team now? Well, he has been for a while, you know, mm. even when he was still race route riding. He's been with us a long time. He's been a great help. And just a, a word on the on the rider, Richard Kingscote. You've you've chucked him the keys for two very important assignments this season, and he's 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 come up for you you both times. How much satisfaction does that give you? Um, yeah, yeah, I was very pleased for him. You know, he's he's put in a lot of hard work here over the last few years, and well, the Derby was easy for him. Uh, yesterday was a big day, and he he, he rode a great race. And you mentioned the Derby. Um, how's Desert Crown getting on? Yeah, he's uh, he's getting on fine. He's getting on fine and soon going to be going back on the saddle next week. Okay, and then what do you do? Do you just keep him gently ticking over through the winter and, and, and make a plan for, for the spring? Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world.
the only thing I would say is that I was at Keeneland last week and I've never seen that turf track in better condition than it is now. And what condition was it in terms of description? What would they have said? Well, it was year? firm ground yeah. and, they, and the times were fast, but I've never seen the track in as good, consistent, lush condition as it was. Mm as it was last week. So that, that may yet encourage them. It certainly will encourage, I hope, Rafe Beckett, who could go there with, uh, with Kin Ross, who added a, the six furlong Group 1 British champion sprint yesterday to his Group 1 victory in the Prix de la Forêt. And you look at him here, third from the right of picture. Rafe, good morning. There was really never any doubt in your mind. I doubt you've ever enjoyed watching a horse race as much as this. Uh, you, uh, you, you're not far wrong there, uh, Nick. It was, uh, it was a joy to watch. And Frankie de Tori's clearly developed a good rapport with this horse, but he looks a straightforward horse now. Do you think he's just got more grown-up, professional, smart, sharp, streetwise? Call it what you will. Yeah, I think that you know that that's definitely the case. He's very late foal, Nick. You know, and he was very immature, really. He couldn't cope with with the preparation for the two thousand guineas. We got him there, but it, it wasn't it wasn't easy. And that rather affected the rest of his three-year-old career, um, even though the Guineas was in June that year. Um, so, yeah, he's come of age, really. That's that, that's in every in every sense, physically and mentally. Remember watching him win that Newmarket Maid on his debut. He looked an absolute superstar. But even then, did you imagine that he could be winning Group One races over six furlongs? Well, <clears throat> I said yesterday that. Um, I remember in, in May of his three-year-old career, James Delahook, the late, great James Delahook, ringing and asking me if he should back him for the Guineas. And I said, I think he really, really has the speed enough to win a July Cup. And, yeah. uh, so I've always had a bit of an itch to scratch there, and yesterday we did it. You did? Does that make you think differently about what you do with him from now on in? No. No, because it's quite simple, Nick. Six furlongs on soft ground, he's, you know, he's able to do what he did yesterday. But on fast ground, he gets beaten two and a half lengths in a Golden Jubilee. You know, that's, that's where we are with him. Uh, you know, seven furlongs, obviously, is probably his optimum. But I'm looking forward to going a mile at Keeneland in three weeks. Time. It's... It's such an enterprising, a lovely treble, that foray, champion sprint, Breeders' Cup mile. Having won a sprint like this, does that, does that change a horse in a sense that it makes it more difficult for him to settle or switch off over a mile, or, or, not, or is that not a worry? It wouldn't be a worry with him, no. He's very straightforward to train. And, you know, he, he has various physical issues. We, we, he had a shoe off for three days between the foray and the... And, uh, and and yesterday, uh, he's got paper thin soles, so we have to mind him that way. And you know, every ailment for him is a is a disaster. You know, he's a bit of a hypochondriac in that sense. So, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, it, but he's a very clean winded horse, so it doesn't take much training, and uh, he won't do much before he goes to Keeneland. And I think the sort of change of environment will really suit him. So, looking forward to that. And I, I'll never forget your your great strike at the Breeders' Cup when they said that the marathon in 2008 with with Mohanak still still in a weird and wonderful way. One of the great days. Well, it was for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, he was he was an enigma. 
uh, wrapped up in a riddle, as the saying goes. Uh, he was he was a very uh, he was an extraordinary horse. We couldn't train him at all, really. We just had to let him get on with it in his own way, and uh, uh, that that uh, that that really suited him. I always remember John Garnsey of the Sunday Express. You know, as all the press men come out at um, at, at the back on the back straight at. Uh, on the back stretch, I should say, at Santa Anita, and he comes out of the barn on the second or third day he was there. And Mahana comes out, and uh, John says, he's looking a bit woolly, Rafe. And uh, he reminds me of it every time I see him. <laughs> you know? uh, 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 great character, John. So, uh, no, it was a great week. We we we, uh, we felt like um, tourists there. We really didn't know uh, what, what we were doing, but we knew we knew that the, the horse could only go about it one way. And... Uh, uh, the, the late, great Pat Smullen was brilliant on him that day. So off to America again, this time with Kin Ross. Before you go, you've had a, a fantastic season. This horse with two Group 1s. We spoke about Lazoo a couple of weeks ago. Prosperous Voyage, getting the better of Inspiral in the, in the Falmouth. Westover's win in the Irish Derby and great run in the Derby itself. Uh, what's, been, what's been the day that you've enjoyed the most? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, all for different reasons, really. Um, you know, Lazoo went west after the Princess Margaret, so to get her back, that was a that was a great kick. There, prosperous voyage in the Falmouth, because you know she was up against a seven to one on shot, but it was the right race for her. Westover, because you know things hadn't gone right in the Derby, and he proved himself that day. And uh, Kinross because he's been with us since he was a yearling, you know, and and to get it finally get it done in the autumn of his five year five year old year was uh, was a, was a great thrill. <laughs> You've Sorry, been... somebody's just opened the door. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought you were doing your usual trick of hanging up on me on Zoom. <laughs> no, no, uh, not this time. Not do this I, time. Do Maybe do next I, time. Do I? All right, but I'll try this one for size. I get to do I get to do my my mandatory one racing politics question at the end. Then um, I did uh, I did earlier in the week uh, talk to talk to both the uh, NTF uh, chief executive Paul Johnson and the Thoroughbred Group uh, chairman Charlie Parker, and they were both offering me quite a lot of encouragement that this new governance structure uh, is going to come in force for for, for British racing, whereas the the, the leaks elsewhere suggested that there was a, a bit of a roadblock. What's your What's your intel telling you? Uh, well, those two are at the centre of it. Inevitably, there are, um, with so many vested interests, there are going to be uh, bumps in the road. But uh, my understanding that is that uh, this one isn't going to turn into a roadblock. So we look forward to it. OK, well, if if you're hopeful, then... The rest of us can be cautiously optimistic, can't we? Uh, that doesn't say much for me. Nick, I'm always a glass half full man. You know that. So Baybridge did everything and more that was asked of him. In Spiral, I'm afraid, didn't do anything that was asked of her, and she blew it at the start of the Queen Elizabeth II stakes, a race that was won by the 33-to-one-shot Bayside Boy, continuing the autumn revival, or flurry, of... Uh, Roger Varian, look at Inspiral nearest to you and Frankie Dottori. This is what he described as her Hamlet cigar moment. And Neil, she's always on the back foot here. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, I mean, she stood there so well. Well, um, it wasn't great away either. 
But, um, you know, when you miss the start by that far in a big championship race like that, yes, okay, she's got back into the race and she's got into a position, but if your horse is not travelling and taking you and you're having to play catch-up, then it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very detrimental and it, it showed that it was there. Look at the acceleration here of the winner uh, with the, the gold cap, the, the maroon. Uh, finishing, you know, Tom Marquand in, in full flight on this horse and uh, this horse partly owned as we've said by Balinch, Lynch Stud also bit, by yeah. uh, Team Valley and Team Valley, um, Jim Coburn who was favourites racing once upon a time is now Team Valley and has got all sorts of wonderful racehorses and this performance was 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 well it was it was 33 to 1 so so it was clearly unexpected really struck by Rog by Roger Varian afterwards they were obviously very disappointed that Eldar Eldaroff had been beaten earlier on but now so their jaws he said were right on the ground and then funny old game this he said look at uh, Bayside boy and you saw there Bayside boy Tom Marquand riding could barely pull the horse up he hit the line so hard Roger Varian's on the line now uh, Roger good morning good morning Nick how are you I mean, you seemed in a little bit of it. I haven't seen you that surprised that often in your career, but even you seemed a little surprised by that. Well, I think when you, you start any race, whether it's a handicap or a group one at 33 to one, you know, the most optimistic of us, you know, we, we probably can't go out and say we think we're, you know, we, we're going to win. So the win in the manner that he won, yes, you could say was a touch of a surprise, but... Um, him to run very well or so well wasn't, you know, he'd been training very well. Um, he's got bits and pieces of very good form, particularly as a juvenile. And uh, he put it all together yesterday, which is fantastic. And, and the blinkers do seem to have made a, a pretty significant difference. Uh, did you, what, what made you put them on in the first place? I think if you watch his run back in the thoroughbred stakes, uh, at Glorious Goodwood, it was very similar to his run in the French Guineas. Um, slightly awkward head carriage, but possibly not attitude. Maybe, maybe ground. Nick, uh, on both occasions, he was racing on a very fast surface on an undulating track, um, and he didn't look happy. But you know, we had to change something up, and I would say a combination of uh, a little bit of patience, waiting for some better ground the application of blinkers just to, to give him a little bit of focus that perhaps he required. A combination of things um, saw it come together, you know, two starts ago when he won the fortune stakes at Sandown. And of course, yesterday he, he stepped up massively on, on that form as well. I think that, you know, with horses, um, you're often looking for op optimum uh, conditions, be it uh, distance, track and, and ground. And we always, we always believe that the stiff mile at Ascot on autumn ground would be to his liking and that's why we weren't afraid to have a go yesterday. And and what, what sort of future do you think this horse has now, Roger? What, what's, the, what's the plan? Well, I'm no further ahead with that plan, Nick, than I was straight after the race. I need to catch up with, um, with Jim Coburn and Richard Ryan of Team Valley and uh, John O'Connor of, of Valley Lynch Stud for parts of the horse. And, uh, you know, see, see where they feel we ought to go and, and what his future holds. He's, he's um, you know, without doubt uh, added a, a significant value to himself yesterday, uh, being a very talented juvenile, winning the Champagne Stakes, being by the, 
exceptional young side, New Bay, and now, you know, um, adding a Group 1 as a three-year-old to his CV. He's obviously um, hopefully got a future um, not only as a racehorse, but as a stallion as well. So there's a, there's a lot to weigh up, a lot to consider, um, and uh, all those conversations haven't taken place yet. So we, we look forward to sitting down with, with Richard and, and John and Jim and um, yeah, see where we're going to go. Alpinista's group Annabelle Willis, quite pleased after after Alpinista was uh, heroic in the arc this year and joins me now, having won the World Pool Moment of the Year for her victory in the Yorkshire Oaks, Annabelle, which has yielded you and all your staff at St Mark Prescott's 34 grand. So this is the season that just keeps on giving, isn't it? Yeah, and she is the horse that keeps on giving. She really is so special and we're so delighted to have her and, and this has really just been the, the icing on the cake after a brilliant campaign this year. I mean, we spoke at, at York after after she won the Yorkshire Oaks. You were happy, to say the very least. Yeah. But just explain why why the arc provoked just that incredible outpouring of energy and emotion from you. It was just, it was such a huge dream. I mean, everyone wants to have a runner in the arc, a contender in the arc, but to have a winner in the arc is almost out of your wildest mm -hmm. imaginations, for, for a groom especially. You know, you work with this horse every day, and I've worked with Alpinista for for four years since she was a, a yearling all that potential has come down to that that moment it was just an, a surreal experience and I, I could I could hardly breathe watch watching her it was just incredible incredible and and the the level of elation it was just indescribable now the um the person you were with there you're very close to anyway aren't you yeah. so that kind of made it so just tell me a little bit about how you're all <laughs> how you're all connected so Molly, who I'm in, in the video with, um, she is Luke Morris's partner, and she's also my best friend, mm. and I'm godmother to Luke and Molly's son, Henry, so it's, it was a very special moment to, to share with her, so, and she obviously has many connections to, to share my joy. Did you know you were being filmed? Um, they, I was pre-warned that, that after York there might be some cameras around, but I, I, I can't really rein in, unfortunately. I'm sort of in the moment with her, and yeah, I don't think I, that sound doesn't normally come out of my mouth very often, but I, for some reason that's that's the only way I can know to react to watching Alpinista run. One thing I always notice when I'm at the races and you don't see at home and you don't see on TV, Neil, is what happens after all the, the show of the owners and the trainers and the jockey having their discussion, which has probably happened two hours ago anyway, when the jockey gets legged up, what the jockey then talks to the, the groom about. And quite often if they haven't ridden the horse before getting a little bit of a steer on, on a few things. I always find that fascinating, because you always see it. Yeah, well, you know, especially if you if you don't ride certain horses, you can only watch replays or, or look at their form and only get so far of a gauge. But these guys, like, 
they live with them. Like they, they feed them in the morning, they, they groom them, they ride them out. So they, if anybody knows them as well as that, it's, it's them. So you, when you need to find out something, mm. you ask them. I hope I'm asking the trainer because the trainer's <laughs> in the Jeep driving off to, to have a coffee. But <laughs> now these guys, you know, it's always great to kind of get um, a character reference from a certain type of horse. Yes, that's what you mean. So you sort of say, well, he or she is on good form at the moment or he or she has been a bit funny this morning on the way here or whatever, that kind of thing. Yeah, and just, uh, you know, uh, does it like a pat? Does it like, um, does it want to boot out a gate to, to make it jump or does it jump natural? And no, no better place to get it and get it from these guys. And I think one of the things that British racing has done very well, and, and Champions Day has played a big part in that over the last 10 or 12 years, is you know expanding the, the, the interest for people who are following. You know, once upon a time, we just concentrated on the owners. Then it was the owners and the trainers. Then the jockeys became part of the whole thing. And now the stable, the, you know, those people who are involved with the horse every day. And I was really struck yesterday by Valentin Korotenko, who uh, leads up Trushan. Uh, and uh, he's Ukrainian. Uh, he, um, so Alan King was waiting for Trushan to come back to the winner's enclosure, and he arrived, and all that Valentin could say was, it's three boss, it's three boss, <laughs> and the enthusiasm was fantastic. And he, Valentin, has had a, a horrible time. He's Ukrainian. He's had to go to Ukraine to get family out of Ukraine and get them to the UK. So he has been rewarded for that particular courage by being able to look after this horse. And it's three, boss, it's three. <laughs> they, you were up against a great shortlist as well in the in the Whirlpool moment of the day. Four of you, you vying for that. I, I did, however, think that when Alpinista won the arc that you might just have a little bit of an edge. Uh, what, what kind of reactions it had around the yard winning the prize? I think um, everyone's delighted. It, it was obviously a very hot competition, but, um, you know, we're a small stable and Sir Mark is a, a very long-standing trainer, but the majority of his, his staff and especially his riders are, are, are young, young, young people straight out of racing school mm. and they're so delighted to be involved with, with a horse that's so poignant in his career and we're all, we're all just so delighted to have her and I think one of the, uh, one of the girls, she put, Alpinista, you really are the queen of all our hearts and I think that's very fitting because she is. And you've been so closely involved with her for such a long time now. How do you feel about taking her to Japan? That looks as though it's on the cards, talking to, to Kirsten and, and Sir Mark the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it, 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 it does seem sort of, it's still, it's still very much in, under discussion, but um, it would be very exciting. It'd be something I've never done before. It'd be a little bit out of my comfort zone, but, you know, we, I know her very well, and I'm sure we'll sort of work it out, work it out together. And she's extremely calm character she's very professional i'm sure she'll take it all in her stride she's well used to traveling around europe so obviously it's a bit of a further field trip but i'm sure she'll handle it just fine do you like the idea of it do you like uh, the idea of the adventure yeah I, how could you not you know it's some it's you know it's a, a far land that i would have never been able to to go without alpinista and you know, it's obviously very exciting and it would be an amazing once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take a horse out there. And have you done every foreign trip with her? Have you been to Germany every time? To, uh, to France I've only, time? I missed her first German Group 1 that mm -hmm. she won because of COVID restrictions. I hadn't had that all my have, vaccinations. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit bittersweet. I, I, I really I watched the race at um, Molly and Luke's home and I, I jumped up so much I hit my head on the beam in their living room. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, nobody, yeah, but, nobody was filming that one. Yeah, no, no. But, um, yeah, it was a bittersweet, but I've been there every every other time since, and I ha yeah, made sure not to miss a beat after that. And I guess you just have so much faith in her as a 
as a character as well that she's you know she seems so sort of self-contained that she knows how to look after herself yeah she is a real professional and she gets on with the job every day and she really she really enjoys it so you know that she's she's not at all sour in any way she loves being a racehorse and she's happy to do the job and you really feel like she relishes in her racing I feel like I'm asking you the same question, similar question to the one I asked William Haggis earlier on, which, which was, how do you how do you see life beyond Alpinista and being with her every day? It's, it's hard to imagine a time now that I haven't looked after her. I'd only worked for Samark about 18 months when I got her as a yearling, so it's going to feel quite strange to mm. be there without her, but it's been a, a remarkable journey. And because she'll only be at Lamwade Stud and, and Miss Rousing such a fantastic owner-breeder, she has said that I can go and visit her, so she won't be too far away. So it, it will be a sad goodbye, but it's sort of a see you soon, not a goodbye forever. Well, have a great time in Japan. Congratulations on the 34,000. I think Annabelle should at least be promised a drink at the very <laughs> least by each recipient. However, this is people it's separated into. Um, thanks so much. It's been, been a great couple of weeks. It's been a great couple of years for you. Yeah, thank you very much. I say hold that thought because here are the final standings for the Jockeys' Championship 2020. What year are we in? Two. Two. Um, William Buick, 157 from 593. Now, bear in mind, these went from, what was it, May the 1st? Whatever the Very day kick is. Yep. I think it was maybe, maybe even weekend. April, yeah, April 30th weekend. or whatever. Holly Doyle and Tom Markwood, inseparable. Neat, isn't it? Tremendous, isn't it? 91-613, Holly Doyle wins on percentage. Tom, 91-632, and Paul Mulrennan, 80. What a season he's, he's had, had 80 530. And he's been so mustered around those northern and Scottish tracks this year. That's a, a great result for him. Yeah. Where are you on this? Very consistent. Um, I was just thinking, I'm just building up for next season. All right, handicapping yourself. I, we had this conversation the other day on... Um, Somewhere else, I can't remember. But we did have this conversation the other day. It was on my podcast, wasn't it? Yes. And I asked you about how hungry you were going to be for rides next year. Yeah, I'm hungry for rides. But, um, you know, as far as championships go, I don't think so. Um, obviously, I want to ride as many winners as I can. Would you uh, set yourself a target? No, I don't like targets. I like okay. to go with the flow. All right. Tony Cruz style. <laughs> I've always liked that, go with the flow. Um no, look, I just want to ride good horses and I want to gain more contacts. Look, my main objective, it wasn't a target, it was an objective that coming back from Hong Kong, that um, to re-establish myself to show that I was capable uh, to, to still ride at the top level and that's what I wanted to do. Is there a suggestion you're going to be riding against one of your children before too long? Yeah, well, my eldest son, Jack, is, uh, he's been riding work. Uh, my, my second eldest, Henry, now, he's been riding out for the Simcox, uh, David Simcock and Jenny. And Jack's been riding work for uh, George Bowie three mornings a week before school. He's been to Andrew Bowling's. He's going to Johnny Murta's next week for All a week. All the right places. Wow. So he'll sleep well when he comes back from there, so Johnny <laughs> tells me. Um, if, you're, if you're, he's going to... You're not, yeah, anyway, he's going to be completely outriding you. He told done. me I can't finish riding until he starts riding. And so and he can beat you. Yeah, but then he's turned around and said the other day that because he's actually quite bright, Jack, and his uh, grades at school are quite good. And you say that as if we should be surprised. I have met Trish. No, but George Bowie said to him, "Look, you're too bright. Do your A levels. Racing's not going anywhere. So what he's going to do, we think, is that he's going to get his amateur license, and uh -huh. he can ride for next year in amateur races, and a bit like what Ryan Moore did. Mm. And uh, Christophe Lemaire was an amateur rider." 
a lot of top jockeys were. And he can gain experience, he can get a little bit stronger, and he can get a, a, a guide on how races are run and all that. And then he can do his A-levels and hopefully do well and start from 18 and hopefully be champion jockey in his first season. <laughs> but That's the dream. I wonder if you all will you will, will you get somebody to have the bet that, that Ian Balding had about well, and this about was, William Buick. So and so the thing about these championships with William Buick with Benoit de la Sayette and uh, perhaps not so much with the trainers now, but with the two jockeys uh, titles is that well let's deal with Benoit first of all. Benoit has had to come from right down there, having obviously had. Uh, his his difficulties of late, but he seems to have put them behind him with the support of Gosdens and the Gosdens and lots of other people, and he's ended up champion apprentice. Yeah. And after a really good um, a, a really good battle as well with with Harry, um, and then you've got William, who finally is the uh, the champion flat jockey. I can remember William, who I think is now thirty either thirty two or thirty three. I remember him aged. 13 or 14, coming with his two brothers to Newbury races with their dad, Walter, who was writing notes for the form book. And there he is on the screen there. But in those days, he was on the, uh, in the media centre at Newbury. There are some, um, there are desks. And he used to, they used to sit, the three brothers, on the back desks. Uh, all sort of, um, uh, uh, they were slouched across the table and eating all the sandwiches as soon as they came out. And uh, they got to know the media, and a lot of media people got to really like William, and he talked about his ambitions for one day. And then, what, 15, 16, 17 years later, look what he's doing. Uh, oh, and for, nice. and, and with, with his son there as well, it's, uh, it's beautiful. Uh, and it, it took a bit of time in coming, but I love the, the, the story that we've heard this week, that Ian Balding, when he then went, he graduated on to Kingsclear, went there as an apprentice, and Ian Balding, uh, father of Andrew, was so struck by what he was seeing that he struck a bet on him being champion jockey. I think the technicality was before he was 30. Mm. Uh, so technically, uh, technically, it was spent, but they're paying out, and I think the injured jockey's fund is benefiting by five grand, which is lovely. Excellent. Well and Ian Balding will be so chuffed by that. And the, the whole team at Kingsclear as well. Um, William Buick, champion jockey. Benoit de la Sayette, champion apprentice. We will hear from Buick now, who talked yesterday to British Champion Series Mike Catamar. William, what a fantastic year. Yeah, unbelievable. Thank you very much. I mean, um, look, look at you know, the, the support I've had and, and all the well wishes has been fantastic. Um, Obviously, to, to to be here with family and friends is, is, is fantastic. And, uh, you know, this has been a, a, a long long ambition of mine. And to be doing it is a, is a dream come true. So, um, this thanks to so many people. Um, you know, being a jockey is, is certainly no... Uh, no um, <laughs> it, it's, it, nothing is, it is by yourself, you know. So, I've got plenty of people... That, that I would like to thank and got too many to mention I'll be, I'll be up here for a very long time so um, but they all know who they are and obviously all, all the family and friends being here is um, makes it all extra special Well we, we, when you first started a lot of us in the press room were thinking you're obviously an outstanding talent and one day this would be you know this would happen and it's happened and it's just wonderful to see it your father Walter was champion jockey in Norway of course wasn't he? Yeah exactly um, like I say you know it's it's been a long ambition, and I think for any young jockey starting out, it, it is something that you want to achieve. It's in many ways, it's the ultimate goal. So, look, to to be to be able to stand here now and, and have done it is it's certainly a great feeling. 
And you've not only had a great year here, I was just saying to Hugh Anderson of the Godolphin, you've won so many big races abroad as well. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, obviously I have an, an exceptional job with Godolphin, riding for Charlie Appleby and, and you know, that very privileged position riding some wonderful horses. Um, and a key aspect of, of that job is, is on the global stage. So that's something that's very important. And I've been able to, to sort of balance, balance that with, with the domestic ride. So, you know, I, I couldn't have asked for any more. And now that you've got it, would you like to win it again? Yes, of course. Um, you get a real taste for it. And it's a, a lot of things need to click, but certainly be given another go next year. Benoit de la Serre, what a fantastic season he's had. Benoit, congratulations. What a, what a moment for you. It's been an amazing season, and um, I've been supported by such wonderful people. I've got a lot of people to thank, and um, first thing I want to start with is my uh, rival, who's, who's given a great competition this year, Harry, and I wish him all the best for the future, and hopefully um, there's, there's many more battles to come. I'm sure there will be. Are, are you, although you're great rivals, you're good pals, I understand. Yes, we are. We, this, um, this championship's brought us closer together, and um, it's a great friendship to have. And how are you enjoying being, being a, a professional jockey? Um, well, it's, it's my dream from a very young age, and uh, there's a lot of people to thank, so I'm going to thank them now. I like to, I like to start with my, uh, my boss and uh, Thady for supporting me this year, the owners and trainers as well, who've, who've backed me from day one. Um, next will be my agent, who's done an amazing uh, job, this, job this season. And, um, Who's your agent? Uh, Paul Clark. He's, yeah. he's, he's amazing, and without him, this, uh, the rides and um, winners wouldn't be possible. Also, I'd like to thank my uh, sponsor that I've recently uh, partnered up with, and hopefully there's many more years to come. And um, last but not least, my parents, who's, who's, who've been there backing me from day one. And uh, this, dream, this dream has come, come true today. Without, without them, it's not, definitely not possible. Benoit de la Sayette wins the Flat Apprentice Jockeys Championship with 60 victories in the end. In the end, a comfortable enough victory over Harry Davis. Uh, another productive season for Safi Osborne with 31 successes. And Ryan Sexton. Ryan Sexton's made a real impression, hasn't he, around the north? There's a real feeling that he is the, he's the real deal and going to really break through as well. Yeah, if he got going a bit yeah. earlier, yeah. he'd have been... What's he claiming He'd have been right there. How many is, is Ryan three? Sexton claiming? Well, he's, he's, he's is he riding plenty, plenty of people taking yeah, no, advantage. Well, so, yeah, definitely a name to keep on the right side of. What's been the secret to Benoit de la Sayette's ability to recover from that... Oh, we're talking about bumps, block, in, the bumps in the road. <laughs> it was a pretty big bump in the road. His, his ban Greater, to come back and, and win this. Yeah, look, obviously the kid can ride a bit, um, but obviously, like, um, under the tutelage of, of John and Teddy, but I, I, I'd, I'd imagine mainly John, um, to kind of guide him and straighten him out. But um, I, I, I know Benoit's dad. I've known him for a long time. I knew him since I was an apprentice. He used to ride out for Godolphin. And uh, he has been driving him everywhere and been by his side throughout the whole season. Jeffrey and um, he's, a, he's a lovely fellow, really good guy and I think he has kind of micromanaged him on so a, kept, kept in a daily him. life, yeah. you know, and, yeah. you know, been racing with him home, racing the next day home, so, you know, I think uh, at some part of it has to go, some credit go to his dad.
and you saw Willie Carson presenting the trophy there. That was nice. As, and Willie and Jane Cecil were very much part of the whole day, as was uh, the Queen Consort, uh, Her Majesty, uh, um, Queen Camilla, because it was great to see her there today. I felt it uh, yesterday. I felt the, um, the, there was slightly less fuss around her. The, 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 there was a tiny bit more informality, which was nice to see. And she presented uh, Willie and uh, Jane Cecil on behalf of her late husband, Henry, with their positions in the, in the Hall of Fame, which mm -hmm. was, uh, was really nice. Tom Markrand obviously thinks I'm some kind of royal correspondent because before he went up to receive his trophy for Bayside Boy, I got on the tap on the shoulder. Do I call her your Royal Highness or your Majesty? But uh, I, I, thank goodness I was right. Your Majesty, your Majesty is the word. Though Camilla gives the impression that she probably wouldn't mind too much. Did he say, could I have your autograph, please, Mr. Witchell? Uh, no, but he did. I, I, he, he called me Cornelius. I was quite surprised. <laughs> what does he normally call you? Well, probably nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's just cast our mind back before we release Neil Callan back into the wild to, <laughs> to a couple of weekends back and your Group 1 victory for, for Kevin Ryan on Fontaine at Newmarket in the Sun Chariot. This must have given you a buzz, mustn't it? Oh, it did. Um, I, Kevin rang me in the middle of the week and he went, um, I've got a ride for you. I've been dying to get you on a good one and I think I've got one for you. And he said... He obviously explained um, the split between Sheikh Obed and, and Andrea Sini mm. and said that uh, Fontaine's going to run in the Sun Chariot and you're going to ride her. And I was like, I was like, wow, thank you, brilliant, deadly. Got off the phone and I went to my wife. I won't say I won't say what I said on air, but I was like, I think uh, Javalotto of Marcos was to run that weekend mm. at Ascot. Yes, and uh, he was going to run a list race. Uh, and the pupil assistant, Connor, said it was Saturday. And I was like, no, but it was Friday. So luckily, <laughs> when I checked, we were all good. So, But look, that, that, you, you talk about the, the staff and everybody, and you show the videos of everybody showing the emotion and that from winning big races or whatever. But that meant more than just winning a group one mm. because it was for Kevin. Yeah, We're good mates. We were a great team. He's my son Jack's goddad. And it just goes way beyond. So to win that was just put the cap on a season, like my first season back. Well, there are very few people who can really get a handle on what is going on in Westminster at the moment. It matters particularly to our sport and our industry in Safer Gambling Week. Um, because we're still unsure as to when the white paper on gambling reform, making gambling appropriate for a digital age, is, is going to appear. Michael Ducker is the chief executive of the Betting and Gaming Council. Michael, not only that, you spent three years in a senior position within Downing Street before you entered Parliament in 2010 uh, to 2017, and as a, as a Labour frontbencher, you shadowed... Secretaries of State at the Ministry of Culture and Ministry of Sport. So you're in a good position to try and figure out what's going on. Where are we left as a as a betting industry with this with this white paper? Well, I mean, I don't think any of us who've been either part of uh, part of Westminster or observing it closely over the years could um, have ever seen anything like this before. You know, we've had four chances of the Exchequer and. In four months, um, in terms of where we stand for uh, betting and racing, uh, the government announced a, uh, a review back in 2020 and launched that review. I think originally the plan was that there'd be a white paper uh, by the summer. Mm -hmm. 
then it was kind of the autumn and by the and summer Christmas. of 2021 yeah yeah so it was queen's speech 20, 2020 it was going to be a white paper by 2021 yeah. we're now at the back of 2022 yeah but we've had i think i've been doing the job for less than three years and have dealt with five different gambling ministers i mean there are more gambling ministers and runners in the national it's you know and, and a lot of this stuff is it's pretty complicated. It's pretty tricky. And there's huge things at stake for us. So if you think about the betting industry, 120,000 jobs depending on it, £4.5 billion in tax. That's money that could come in handy in the next uh, few weeks for whoever is doing the chancellor's job. £7.7 billion for the economy, £350 million for racing. You know, there's an awful lot at stake. I mean, the truth is, I think... Um, We've seen signs that the new ministers who were appointed, we've had Damien Collins since the end of July as gambling minister, um, I'd say compared with now, chancellors, this is interesting, isn't it? Because, quite a long tenure. Because Damien Collins took over from Chris Philp. Yep. Uh, Chris Philp, for those of you who are keeping up to speed with things, then got moved to Chief Secretary of the Treasury, yep. a position from which he has now been sacked by Liz Truss with the sacking of Kwasi Kwarteng. Chris Philp who took over the gambling brief from John Whittingdale yeah, that's right. before that. You're keeping up, Nick. I'm keeping up. Chris Philp and his successor, Damien Collins. Would it be fair to say that they are ideologically somewhat different in terms of their approach to gambling? I don't know, actually. I think, um, I think Damien Collins, I've known him a long time. I think he's pretty tough, actually. I think he's got... Uh, you know, wide respect across the house for, you know, championing issues like protecting people uh, from online harms. Um, and so I think he'll be, he'll be pretty tough on betting, but equally enjoys respect across both sides of the house and with colleagues. And I think he wants to get this done and get this over the line. I think the problem a year ago was we had a new Secretary of State, Nadine Doris, and new Minister Chris Philp, who did, they'd inherited quite a well-advanced review mm -hmm. um, by the end of the summer last year from John Whittendale and Oliver Dowden. And I think we felt very confident that there was going to be a white paper before Christmas because most of the work seemed to have been done. Nadine and, and Chris wanted then to look at it again. They spent what seemed like quite a long time looking at it again, many, many months, uh, before trying to have a white paper uh, last July. There's been some criticisms of Michelle Donlan, who's only been in the job three weeks. No, she's, not, she's the new Secretary, the new Secretary of State, State for, for not doing the, you know, a gambling white paper immediately. I think in the same way that, that Chris and Nadine were given you know, an opportunity to, to look at these things as the new Secretary of State and new minister, it's not unreasonable uh, that Michelle and Dave are given a little bit of time to look at these things again. But equally, all the indications from them are that they are going to try uh, and get this over the line and try and have a white paper. I know we've said it'll all be over by Christmas uh, on more than one occasion, but I think there is a, there is a, a determination within DCMS um, to work with the industry, work with others, to try and see, you know, most of this actually is kind of, I think, agreed at the moment. I think most of us know what most of the white paper will look like. There's a few tricky, outstanding issues, but it ought not to be beyond the wit of man to get this done. What's most of it going to look like? Give me a, well, give think, me a, give me a skeleton of, of what well, you I, think will, I think, will yeah. appear and won't appear. Well, I think... Um, we called quite some time ago for an ombudsman to improve consumer redress. I think that's something that an is long... An entirely independent on yeah. ombudsman. So uh, an ombudsman, you have it in other industries. There's no reason why this industry shouldn't have uh, an ombudsman to improve consumer redress. I think there's a consensus around that. We need to work out the details um, of that. Who I would appoint the ombudsman? 
Well, that's think? for the government to work out. But you can have a non-statutory ombudsman, like you have in rail or energy or, or all kinds of other industries, pretty quick. You, you get the ombudsman association, you give them a scope, they knock it together, you consult with the industry, we all to and fro on it, and, you know, you could have that up and running within months. Um, there's no need for new legislation. You don't need a statutory But it would be a government appointee rather than an appointee of the betting industry. Yeah, but it, of course. Yeah. And, uh, and it would have powers and mandatory powers, just like it does for other industries. I think in terms of research, education and treatment, we've made the commitment, a few of the big operators, you know, 1% of, uh, of uh, GGY, so £100 million pounds, uh, by 2024. What happens after 2024, what happens in terms of the rest of industry, I think there's an opportunity to build on further funding uh, from the so industry for research, clear, education that, and treatment. That's 1% of gross... Of, our, of, of GGY. Yeah. So that was an agreement under Jeremy Wright some years ago that yeah. was about a new funding package that would take us to 2024. But obviously then the issue is, what happens after 2024? What about all the other companies? So we're talking to government about how we can build on that. So I think you could have new funding for research, education and treatment in terms of sports sponsorship. I think you could make best practice universal practice. I think we could continue to raise standards uh, around uh, safer gambling in sports sponsorship, but crucially in a way that doesn't kill funding for racing, for low league football, for rugby league, snooker darts, and all those sports that are uh, many of which are struggling at the moment. Um, but I think there's work that we can so you do think there. That's what will appear in the in the white paper. So I think there's some of the things that some of the issues that can be dealt with and can be resolved, I think, with, with considerable consensus. Uh, just reading a piece earlier in the week, I think it was a, a piece in The Guardian about football sponsorship, bookmaker football sponsorship, not just shirt sponsorship, but historic deals that were yielding um, returns, dividends to, to football clubs because they're affiliate deals with, with bookmakers. Now, in horse racing, affiliate deals are, well, so what? This is what happens every day. This is the culture we live in. In, in football, it is not a culture that that is not a culture that society necessarily finds acceptable. Do you sometimes look at this from the outside and think that that horse racing's perception of its relationship with the betting industry is divorced from social reality? No, I think people understand that there's a symbiotic relationship between betting and and racing. Um, there's always been betting around football. I think it has become you know increasingly so so if you take a company like flutter maybe tw 20 years ago uh, them and their brands racing would have been the most popular sport to bet on now it is uh, football um, but also i think what is is not easily understood always is that the funding that betting gives to uh, football particularly lower league football mm. is just as crucial as our funding to racing so this is not just about the premier league where most of the companies are these white labels, they're not UK licensed firms. I think when you get outside of the Premier League into the Championship and the lower leagues, they are disproportionately reliant on funding with betting from UK licensed uh, companies. You know, they have to uh, adhere to very strict standards. Now, is there more that we can do there? I think so. Um, and that's hopefully one of the things that will come out of the white paper. There are tricky issues if we get to the nub of things, which mm. is the whole issue around affordability, yeah. as it's called, which is really about enhanced spending checks uh, online. Now, I think the, the, the way forward here is we've got to recognise, first of all, that 
22 and a half million people in well, hang, hang on, hang on. You can tell me what you think the way forward is in a minute. What I want to know from you and with your intelligence is what if, if a white paper appeared next week... Yeah. So that we, it won't uh, appear uh, next week. No, but if it did, or if it appeared tomorrow, yeah. based on what's already been worked up, what would it say about affordability? Where do you think the thresholds would be drawn? The honest answer is the government hasn't decided that yet, and is still uh, is still talking internally amongst themselves about it, and is talking to industry as well. And really, we have some sympathy with that because they're trying to get this right. It is really tricky. We've seen the black market online double uh, in recent years, double the amount of money punted, the number of punters on the black market. We've got to get a system in place, in my view, that targets the vulnerable. That can we have better protections for young people? Uh, that it uses technology to target people who are clearly showing what we call markers of harm, but can we leave everybody else alone? Because the real danger here is if problem gambling is 0.2%, low, falling by uh, international standards, um, the overwhelming majority of punters do so responsibly, safely, it's what they choose to do with their money, and if you start asking them for bank statements, uh, pay slips, or start you know, intruding uh, in a way that they just think is contrary to their personal freedom of choice, it's mm. their money, they've paid their tax on it, and look, you don't have this in other aspects of life, no one follows you around Sainsbury's taking things out of your trolley saying that's not very good for you or you know perhaps you only want two bottles of wine rather than uh, rather than four and I think people rightly find that very hard to take particularly when they say you know I'm behaving perfectly responsibly and perfectly safely so there is a way uh, in what the government the framework that the government will announce they can do so that is about careful measures that are proportionately targeted to the vulnerable to young people and those showing markers of harm now it, it yeah, is no, I'm aware, it's tricky I, I, listen i'm aware of the lobby i'm aware of what you need on behalf of your industry to say to government to get your point across and i'm also aware of those people who will pick your arguments to pieces but do you accept that there is a number there is likely to be a threshold number where affordability checks will be triggered and will take place and that will appear in the white paper well, the truth is that the uh, there's a lot of talk about the numbers uh, perhaps more important than numbers is the nature of the checks if we're going to do something that is genuinely non-intrusive and doesn't drive uh, punters to the uh, to the black so market, what's, but what's, by the way, it's not, it's not my view. The government, I think, no, I have a lot it. of sympathy for this, but, but what, what, and that's what they're it? wrestling with at the moment because they know there's a lot of political controversy, including huge lobby from racing, mm. uh, but punters who don't want these kind of intrusive checks. So the government is very sensitive to this. But you know it has to be a bit of push and pull to make sure that this white paper actually appears at all yeah. and that the, the industry has to... I'm not saying it has to, to give ground, but it, it has to be on board to a certain extent. So what is acceptable intrusion? What does the industry think is going to be acceptable intrusion to their customer base? I mean, let's be clear... I'm not writing the white paper and the industry isn't writing the white paper. We're making representations. Exactly. The government is talking to us because there is a significant technical challenge in this and we have the data that shows the types of checks that will drive people uh, away. What they're trying to do, and genuinely, I, I have a lot of sympathy for government on this, they're trying to produce a framework so you have checks that are non-intrusive, that the, perhaps the punter won't see, where they're doing kind of background financial uh, checks on people so that they can kind of make judgments about the, how financially vulnerable they may be. You know, you can look at perhaps doing something uh, do a little do, bit how more How do they do that? 
Because people will, people, you, you know that somebody listening to that at home would think, hang on a minute, how is somebody performing background checks on me without me seeing it and without me Yeah, without and this me is issue. That's going, to, that's going to unsettle people far more yeah. than being asked for a copy of their bank statement. Well, I think asking people for a bank statement, you'll find it extremely unsettling. Yeah, for but at, le but at least if somebody asks you for a bank statement, you know what they're doing. There's my bank statement. There are background you checks that you can do, but there's a, there's, a, there's a range of, of measures that, that don't require consent. There are some that do, and I think there is an issue to what extent uh, a punter will even tick a box to say, I'm happy for, you know, my... Uh, my personal financial background to be poured over uh, by uh, by bookmakers and decisions taken in relation to that. So you're right. It, it you know there's a lot of people unsettled by this, and that is one of the reasons why you know we struggle to get this over the line. But I think there is a a system that you can put in place that where you where the punter won't kind of see those intrusive checks. But I think that's about being really really targeted. Look, most people. So what are they? What are they? What sort of thing? What is that? No, I think there are, there are checks that you can do. Like, for instance, markers of harm. So operators can use technology. Uh, most of the big operators have multiple markers of harm. They can see if a punter is suddenly spending a lot more than they normally do, uh, certain times of the day, if they're chasing losses. Okay. Now, there are all these the, the, the algorithms pick up where you can then make targeted interventions. You know, it can be, you know, pop-up messages or contact from the operator, phone calls, you know, and all of those systems are actually in place with a, with, with a lot of the big operators at the moment. So there's a lot of best practice out there. But the, but the government needs to come up with a package, a framework that it can then give to the regulator that, that keeps the overwhelming majority of punters who enjoy a bet on the races and, and leaves them alone. And so you're not driving them away.